Good morning. It's always good to be with you. We're continuing this week, as Keith mentioned, in this message series that we're calling What Would Jesus Undo? And we're looking at various passages, stories in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Jesus is obviously doing all kinds of amazing things in his life and his ministry, but there's also these forces of darkness in our world that Jesus has declared war on. Jesus wants to undo those things. And in the past couple of weeks, we've talked about Jesus seeking to undo the, the power of condemnation in our relationships. You know, the, that, that sense of, of looking at somebody else and deciding that they fall short and, and treating them in that way. That makes them feel like they're not enough. Last week, we talked about Jesus undoing perhaps the, the darkest force in our lives in this world, and that is the force of death. And when Jesus encounters that throughout his ministry, Jesus doesn't just notice it, he doesn't just observe it, he doesn't just experience it, but he undoes the power of death. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this, this force of darkness that exists in our culture. It's this toxic sense of, of contempt that we have. Jesus wants to undo the spirit of us versus them. Every time I hear about an earthquake of, of any size in any place, my mind races back to the, the Loma Prieta earthquake that took place in 1989. It's a 6.9 monster quake that crashed through the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I happened to live at the time. In fact, I lived in San Jose. Uh, and so our experience of that quake was, at least on this uh, scale, severe. Well, I was 11 years old. Uh, it was four minutes after five o'clock in the evening on October 17th. My dad was away at, at night school uh, getting his degree to be a preacher. And so it was my, my mother, my sister Jenny, and I were all sitting down to eat. I believe it was fish sticks. So, you know, it was the dinner of champions. And uh, we were watching the World Series because the San Francisco Giants were playing the, the Oakland A's. We were going to lose that series, but uh, I didn't know that then. And so I was filled with hope as we sat down to watch this World Series game. Uh, and we heard it coming. We heard it coming. And my mom said, this is a big one. Get under the table. And that's when everything started to shake in our house. And we had been through various kinds of earthquakes before, but we could tell right away that this one was different. Uh, the TV fell out of our entertainment center. The dishes in our, our kitchen started to all fall out of the cupboards. Uh, the the uh, sliding glass door right next to me cracked and started to fall apart. And so we were there huddled under the dinner table. My mother started to pray over us, asking God to keep us safe. And it went on for what felt like forever. And when it finally stopped, we all realized at the same moment that my youngest sister, Rachel, who was just six years old, was down at someone else's house. And we wanted to see if she was safe. And so together, the three of us tried to make our way through our living room that now was an obstacle course of all kinds of, of damage and objects that had fallen in our way. We got through the living room. We got outside of our front door and we started to, to walk through our neighborhood towards the house where Rachel was staying. Uh, we've actually got a picture of that, Nate, if you could pull that up. Uh, so this is our street, and you can see this is all new. This is not exactly how it looked when I lived there. We lived in the house, that, that just the corner. You can just see the driveway. And Rachel was down at that blue house. And so we, we didn't have to go that far, um, but that's where we were headed. 
And so as we started to make that walk down the sidewalk, there were, were trees that had fallen down, there were power lines that, that we had to walk around, and our neighbors started to walk outside of their homes just like us. And it was eerily quiet, and we, all of us were trying to look at our houses to see what kind of damage we could see, because you, you could just hear your, your house groaning and creaking during that quake, and you could tell that things were breaking. Um, and as they noticed us going down the street, my mother was actually still holding the fish sticks on a tray. Uh, that's kind of how out of it we were. And so we started to go, and, and they didn't just see us. They walked towards us, and then they started walking with us because that earthquake did something, right, where we wanted to make sure that, that everybody in our neighborhood was okay. Uh, and, and so we started to walk together. And, and part of it was that where that house was located, you could see it's kind of an inverse corner. And so with all the things that had fallen, uh, that yard was clear. You know, there were no power lines, there was nothing there. And so by the time we got there to that house, it felt like nearly the whole neighborhood was with us. And I'll never forget the sound Rachel she was crying at the top of her lungs for my mother when, when they reconciled there on that, that front porch. My mother still, through all of this, holding those fish sticks. <laughs> and, and I remember this neighbor I had just met. His name was Tom. He was just gently patting my shoulder saying, it's going to be okay, son. It's going to be okay. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, we just, we didn't know what else to do but hold on to one another. And it would take hours for us to find out the full scope of the damage, right? I mean, Rachel was okay, but not everybody was okay. 63 people lost their lives in that quake. The Bay Bridge collapsed uh, while people were on it and driving. Uh, 4,000 people were injured. 12,000 people were instantly homeless in 10 seconds, this earthquake did over $10 billion of damage. It was just 10 seconds long. I, I promise you, when it was happening, it felt like it, it was never going to end. And one thing is for certain, that earthquake did something to my neighborhood where it turned it from this area, right, where there was a street and there were houses on it into a real community because in that moment... We, we didn't want to just be people who happened to live in proximity to one another. We wanted to be there for each other. And it changed the, the neighborhood from that point on. Right? There wasn't any of this kind of walking past people and not meeting their eye or stopping to talk with them. People from that point on. And there were weeks and weeks of aftershocks. And every time those aftershocks would happen, everybody thought it was the next big one. Right? And so everybody started to realize how much they needed each other. Now, it shouldn't take something as tragic as an earthquake to wake us up to that, right? To wake us up to, to how much we really need to share life with other people. But, but it almost always takes something to wake us up. Because it seems to me like a lot of us, our default setting is we're moving through this world and we primarily are trying to connect with people we already know, people we already know we like, and, and if we don't know somebody, if we're really pursuing a connection with them, it's because they, they have something they can give us that will help us get ahead, right? They have something they can give us that will help us get where we're trying to get. But that kind of str strategic connecting 
where we're only around people we already know we like or we're, we're trying to be around people we think we might like. That's not anything close to authentically and openly, honestly sharing life with one another. I want you to stop and ask yourself for a moment. You know, how well do you actually know the people who live within a quarter mile of you, who live on the same street with you, who, who might live even next door to you, maybe in the same apartment complex? Do you really know them? How well do you know the people you work with? How well do you know the people you go to school with? How well do you know the, the people that, that you share a grocery store with? You know, more and more, we don't even have to get outside of our car at the grocery store. Do we know anybody, really, that we're around? I mean, when you think about how you're moving through this world, you think about how our culture has changed. Do you think about the folks that are around you in kind of the old-fashioned sense of what it means to be a neighbor? Right, where when people were around you, when they, when they shared the same space with you, you had this internal drive to get to know them, to welcome them, to befriend them. It seems to me in many ways we've lost that drive. And rather than wanting to reach out to people, we have our, our guard up, we have shields up, we, we want to keep a safe distance. That's not how it's always been, but that fear has always been at work in our lives, and we have to... We have to work to overcome that fear. It's not something that automatically we're able to push through. How do you move through the world? Be honest with yourself. Are the folks who you, you happen to share space with, are they someone you're trying to befriend to get to know? Or are they strangers that you're just trying to be civil towards and tolerate and accommodate until you can get away from them and back to those relationships with people that you already know you like? This whole idea of what it means to share space and, and then to move beyond that to trying to bless the people that you're close to, this question of what it means to be a good neighbor is something that beats at the heart of the gospel story. And Jesus talks about it with someone in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 10. We'll start reading together in verse 25. On one occasion, Luke writes, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Right, Luke makes it clear to us that this is a short question that this expert in the law asks. It's, it's a question that's more of a test of Jesus than it is a search for the truth. Right, he says this guy was trying to justify himself. What he really wants Jesus to say is, love the people you're already loving, Right, who is my neighbor? Well, it's, it's the folks that you've already managed to figure out how to have a good relationship with. But instead of saying what this man wants him to say, Jesus, as he so often does, sneaks up on this guy with a story. And the story that he ends up telling is, without a doubt, the most famous story in all of Scripture. And it goes like this. This unknown Jewish man 
is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was about a 15-mile or so trek through rugged, you know, mountainous terrain. And so it's not going to be an easy trip, but he's, he's making it. And as he goes, suddenly this group of thieves sees him, and, and they rush him, and they beat him up, and they take everything of value that he has, and they leave him bleeding and, and barely alive. Right? And so he's laying there, and he's, he's struggling with, with what's going to happen next. Right? And what he needs is someone to walk by. He just needs one person to walk by after these thieves have abandoned him to help him. And the way Jesus is telling this story, you're not sure he's going to make it unless somebody comes soon. And that's exactly what happens. He sees through his, his swollen eyes in the distance, somebody's coming around the bend. And it turns out to be a man of God. It, it, it's a priest. And so he, he comes towards this guy, and, and we're thinking, okay, surely this man of God is going to stop and help him. But instead, what, what really takes place is that he sees the man, he looks around, and he doesn't stop. He, he hurries by. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not just this guy on the road that's expecting this priest to do something. It's us as we listen to the story. And, and we don't know what this priest might have been thinking. Maybe he, he thought the guy was already dead. Maybe he thought that this was all just some sort of elaborate trap, that thieves were still waiting, and, and they were going to attack him. We don't know. We're not given that insight into what this priest was thinking. All we know is he sees the guy who's suffering, and he keeps going. Well, we don't know how much time passed, but another person comes along. It's another man of God. It's a Levite this time. Surely, it's, it's not going to be the same story, right? It's not going to be the same situation where this guy sees him and keeps going, but that's exactly what happens. The Levite doesn't stop. He doesn't help. He just keeps going. And then Jesus says there's this third person who's coming. Now, when Jesus says there's this third person who's coming, I want to be real clear to you. It's hard for us to experience this story for the first time if we've ever heard it before. But I think we can imagine what it was like for someone to hear this story for the first time. And maybe you are hearing it for the first time this morning. But when Jesus says, look, there's a third guy that comes. I think he's got this teacher, this expert in the law right where he wants him. Right? Because the way Jesus has started this story, everybody listening to it knows that someone in it is going to demonstrate what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, we would have expected that the priest would have done that or the Levite would have done that. But when neither of them, when they both fail to be a good neighbor, he's got all of us expecting that the next person will finally be the good neighbor. See, and I'm convinced that the expert in the law, he's not a priest and he's not a Levite. And he knows priests, and he knows that most of them are good guys. But he also knows that every once in a while you come across a priest that might do that. And he knows some Levites, and he knows they're mostly good people, but you might come across a Levite that, for whatever reason, might do that. But now there's a third person coming, and I think what he's hoping is that Jesus says, and now an expert in the law came along, and he stopped, and he did the right thing, and he was the good neighbor. 
you know, it's not exactly like this, but it'd be similar to if I was telling this story for the first time and I said a Catholic priest came by and he didn't do anything, and then a, a Lutheran pastor came by and he didn't do anything, and you'd think, yeah, well, they're upstanding, but, you know, whatever, they're not a Church of Christ member. So then and I say, yeah, and then, right, you're hoping I'm going to say a Church of Christ member comes along and they stop and they do the right thing and they help it, and they're, they're the good neighbor, so when Jesus says, and then this third guy comes along, and he's a Samaritan, uh-oh, right? The story's not going the way anybody would expect it to go. And now the guy's got to think, well, maybe there's four people, because this Samaritan can't be the hero of this story. He's going to rifle through his wallet and take what's left. Surely the fourth person will be an expert in the law, and he'll stop and do the right thing. But that's not what happens next. Now, I, uh, I could go on and on about the social toxic background and history that Jews and Samaritans shared at this time. Right? They had bad blood between them. Uh, they had literally, through the years, violently attacked one another. Uh, they did not share uh, some of the core same religious beliefs and convictions uh, they, they didn't agree about much of anything. They, they didn't agree about what would make for a better world. They, they didn't have the same hope for the future. Uh, they, they definitely viewed various aspects of one another's cultures as, as toxic and dangerous. There was nothing that they shared in common that mattered as much to them as what they didn't share in common. They were not thinking through how they could make peace. They were, they were actually thinking through how they might plot to overthrow or overcome one another. So when Jesus says that the third guy in the story is a Samaritan, you can guess that the expert in the law assumes that the bad guy in real life is going to be a bad guy in this story. Jesus says this third guy, the Samaritan, the bad guy, he stops and he goes to the beaten Jewish man and he treats and bandages his wounds. And then the bad guy picks up the injured man and places him on his own donkey. And then the bad guy takes him to an inn and keeps caring for him. And then the next day, the bad guy gives two days worth of his pay to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. And, and if this doesn't uh, cover the cost, I'll give you even more money. Uh, and then, well, are you starting to get it? The bad guy is not really a bad guy. In fact, it turns out that the bad guy is a really good guy. What, what makes him good? Well, what, what makes him good, Nate, can we go to the next slide? What makes him good is not that he lives his life according to all of the moral expectations that a Jewish person listening to the story what would have carried in their hearts. And it's not that he does all the things that, that they would do in every aspect of his life. No, it's not that he's exactly like them. He's good because he moves beyond cheap, sympathetic feelings to costly, compassionate actions. And I'm telling you, nobody who heard this story for the first time 2,000 years ago would have seen this coming. Jesus finishes the story, and then he asks the expert in the law this question that the expert in the law doesn't want to answer. Which of these three men in the story was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
In fact, this is so hard for the expert in the law to answer that he can't get the words, the, the Samaritan was a good neighbor, out of his mouth. So instead, he kind of distanced himself from that, that character and that name, and he just says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise, which in this context is like Jesus saying, you go and do the good things that the bad guy did in the story. Or in an even more, I think, convicting way, he's saying, you go and in your life, you be like that Samaritan. You be like the person who you wouldn't want to be in the same room with. You be like the person, more like the person that, that you, you feel uncomfortable with. You, you go and you be like a person who makes your skin crawl. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now that's not an easy message to receive. It's not an easy lesson for us to learn because Jesus is saying, look, I know what, what we do in this world. I know how we see one another and I want you to stop labeling some people automatically as good and other people automatically as bad. Stop trying to figure out if there's some group of people who you can label as so bad that you can stop trying to do anything good towards them. You can stop trying to see them for who they really are and you can just ignore them. Stop trying to make lists of people people who have, have messed up their lives so much and, and they've made so many mistakes that you don't have to actually stop and help them. I mean, it's as if Jesus wants to say to this man asking him about what does it take to be a good neighbor, look, if you can imagine a scenario where a Samaritan could be good to a Jewish man, then as a Jewish expert in the law, you can also find it in your heart to be good to a Samaritan, regardless of whether or not you agree, and he doesn't, right? Regardless of whether or not you agree with what the people of Samaria believe or how they live or what they want from the Jewish people, you have to find a way to be good to them because God has already been good to you. And this whole greatest command thing of loving God and loving neighbor how it really works is God showers your life with unconditional love and that love is supposed to change you into somebody who share, not just receives it but shares it with other people unconditionally. The love we receive from God is the very same love we're supposed to share. Go and do likewise. The unique challenge of this parable, I think, is that we will never learn to be like the Good Samaritan as long as we can't imagine a Samaritan being good. Or to say it positively, the only way we're going to learn how to be like the good Samaritan is to imagine a world where a Samaritan could be good. That's the unique challenge of the parable. There's all kinds of other places Jesus talks about having compassion and being good to people, serving people when they need it the most. That's a consistent theme. But the unique challenge here is, can you even believe in a story like this, and think that it's possible in the world we actually share together. It's, it's clear that what Jesus is really trying to do here is he's, he's trying to humanize the kind of person that Jewish people tended to dehumanize. Right? Jesus is reminding all of us that, that, people, that there, there are people in our lives and in our world that we are tempted constantly to oversimplify and overgeneralize and then reject Wholesale. 
to say that if they belong to this group, then I'm done with them. I understand the group, so I understand them, and I'm done with them. And Jesus says that's not how we as his disciples are supposed to move through the world. Because everyone, as individuals, they're people with stories and histories and hearts. Hearts that I think often could surprise us. Now, we may not have an exact example of a Samaritan in our time and place, but I'm pretty sure that we could all make lists of people that we are tempted to Samaritanize. That's not a real word, but go with me. People who, when we look at them, they're problems more than they're people. They're folks that we know we don't see eye to eye with. They're they're men and women that we may struggle to see much of any good in. People with criminal backgrounds. People with life-controlling addiction issues. People from other countries and cultures. People different skin than ours, the chronically unemployed, out-of-touch billionaires, Muslims, atheists, feminists, chauvinists. For many of us, it seems like this matters more and more. It's Democrats and Republicans. I could keep going, but I'm not going to because I don't know exactly who's on your list, but I know you have one. And maybe the first step is to admit that we have one. We have lists of groups of people that we really don't want to see any good in. And Jesus wants us to understand that any time we make that move, any time we take that step away from somebody, any time we choose to Samaritanize someone in our hearts... Jesus is trying to say, you're not trying hard enough to see the good in in one of my children. In other words, the love, the unconditional love that God is showering into our lives is not actually changing us into people of love, people who live love. And and Jesus is saying that's how it's designed to work. And so if, if we're loving God, we should be coming more like God and we should be seeing people the way God sees them. And I promise you, more than anything else, what God sees when he looks at people is the good. He fights to see the good. I think Jesus, in many ways, gives his life to be able to see the good and redeem the good in other people. And the difficulty for us is we have all kinds of folks that we just don't want to see good in. They're the bad guys. Jesus says, look, they're worth more than you want to admit. Every single person who's alive in this world is worth the life of God's own son. And doesn't that mean that you and I need to spend the time and the energy to see that? In his story, Jesus is making the direct claim. That the people we don't like, the people who make us uncomfortable, the people we just don't get, they are people who are worth our time and our energy and our money. They're worth us making and keeping promises to help them. By turning a Samaritan, an enemy, a bad guy, back into a good person in his story, Jesus is forcing us to ask the question, What good are we missing in all of these people in our our, our world and in our lives who we've already written off as lost causes? What's the good that we can't see because we refuse to see it? 
By using the parable of the Good Samaritan to, in a very clear and concrete way, connect both sides of of the, the greatest commands of loving God and loving neighbor, Jesus, I think, is making a very direct challenge to us in terms of thinking that as Christians, we can find a way to stay and remain comfortable. What Jesus is saying, I think, in the most direct and simple way, is that the person the person that we want to love the least is the very same person we need to love the most. And that's hard. I don't know what face and name comes immediately to the forefront of your heart and your soul when you think of the person that you want to love the least. But if you're anything like me, a name and a face comes immediately to mind. And I know that I have stopped trying to see any good in them because that complicates my contempt. And I don't want my contempt complicated. I want it simple and pure. I want to be able to say I'm done and walk away and not think about it again, not think about them again. When Jesus calls us to the two greatest commands of loving God and loving our neighbors, he's not just talking about our thoughts and our feelings. He's talking about real life action because what the Samaritan does is he doesn't just take pity in his heart. He moves beyond those those cheap, sympathetic feelings to costly, compassionate actions. That's what love looks like. We all know that. But we would rather have love-like feelings towards somebody than live a loving life with them. For Jesus, actively showing compassion means putting flesh on God's unconditional love. And sometimes we forget, you and I, that we are defined far more by what we do than what we think or feel. Now, now how we, we think and what we feel absolutely that they both affect what we ultimately do, but actions, as they always have, speak louder than words. And it turns out that's not just true for other people, it's true for God. You know, God says to us, don't tell me what you think you believe or what you feel you believe. I'll tell you what you believe by how you actually live your life. Brothers and sisters, we actually believe what we really do. That's the truth. And, and it's a challenging truth that we have to wrestle with. And, and I'm telling you that it's not enough for us to hear a story like this, even though Jesus is the one telling it. It's not enough for us to say, man, I need to learn how to see people in my life differently. No, we have to see and treat them differently. And so many times in my life, I only go halfway. I only make just enough progress to feel bad to think a lot about it, maybe even to pray about it, but not do anything measurably different in my life in relationship to somebody else who it's difficult for me to love. It's difficult for me to be in the same room. It's difficult for me to have to talk to them and have any sort of real connection. No, I'm done. I'm done. God's God's calling us 
Not to some sort of life of moral perfection where we never make a mistake and every action we take is sinless. That's not what I'm saying when I say we're defined by what we do. What I'm saying is not that what you and I manage to do is what saves us. What saves us is God's work in us. It's what God is doing through us. And many times it's what we're getting out of the way of because God is trying to change us in ways that we're resisting and we need to embrace that transformation from who we are into who Jesus wants us to be. We partner with that, that transformation journey and we find that we're able to see good in places and in people we've never seen good before. The person that you want to love the least is the person God is calling you to love the most. Who is that person? Who is your Samaritan? What group do they belong to that you've written off? Whatever it is, Jesus says, we need to be the people who find the courage and the strength to see God's children the way he sees them. It's not just about how we receive the story and what it makes us think and what it makes us feel. It's what we're actually doing. And brothers and sisters, I'll just confess to you, I have a lot of positive, warm, fuzzy thoughts towards people who I find difficult to love, but they wouldn't know it because I find them difficult to love. They know that. It's time for us to stop these half measures of following Jesus. You know, I think back to that earthquake and And I think about what it did to my neighborhood where it shifted us from this this street with houses on it to a real community. It was this wake-up call that we needed. We were sharing a street together, but we weren't sharing life together. And we didn't even have a desire to do that. And yet, once we realized how fragile life was, how short life could be, and how much we needed each other, we were there for one another in a way that, that we never would have even thought about before. And it shouldn't take something like some tragic earthquake to wake us up, but it takes something to wake us up. And as people who want to follow Jesus, why don't we let Christ be that wake-up call to wake us up to not only what matters most but who matters most to God and to move past feelings and thoughts but to actually what we're doing may we let Jesus help us undo this toxic culture of us versus them to realize that we have no enemies we have brothers and sisters And it's not enough to change how we see them. We have to change how we treat them. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be in our church lobby. They're there to pray with you, to receive you, uh, to be community for you. And so if you came this morning with any concerns at all that you'd want to talk with a Christian couple about, if you came with Thanksgiving in your heart that you want to share with us, please go to those couples together we stand and sing.